Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Um, this is a year of church health, and you're going to see that theme come up over and over again. And one of our noteworthy initiatives this year is raising up our next generation's of leaders and servant leaders and ministers. Two noteworthy things about that initiative. Uh, One, our elders, individual elders, pursuing and mentoring young men and looking for those future leaders of God's church. Another one is what you just saw. a year of focusing in on our student ministries. So I'll tell you a quick story. It was three years ago that Nick Ferguson, uh, my dear brother and co-worker in the faith, took another position in the South. And um, Rachel Ryder agreed to be the interim student ministries director for three to six months. And she did such a great job, other areas to address and other problems to solve. She's still going strong three years later. She's done a fantastic job. But this is our year where we're actually uh, actively searching for and raising up our next student ministries pastor. So more information to come. Thought that you should hear that. But could we just pray for our year together In some of those initiatives. Would you bow with me? Lord, this is your church, and it's not about us only. It's those outside and those behind. Lord, we ask that this church would not be about us in our preferences, all about our growth. But Lord, we would be looking around in our community. We'd also be looking behind those younger than us, that every single one of us would have a heart for raising up those future generations that are going to take this church long after we are gone. We pray that you would prosper our way. Give us eyes to see and wisdom, good strategy, Lord, to identify and train all people But then also, Lord, that next generation of leaders who will take the burden of responsibility. And that this church would continue to be a light in this community and around the world. We pray this together. If you agree with that, say amen. Amen. Well, I've got a question for you this morning. I'm wondering if there's anyone here that actually enjoys a good performance review. Like, yeah, the quarterlies are here, or the annual performance review. Those of you who are, who are a career people, okay, so you might not be a career person. Maybe you're in an organization that doesn't have that. Do you remember progress reports? Yeah, do you ever have those? How about report cards? They don't do those anymore, do they? They're all electronic, but it's called grades have just been posted, Is that a a kick in the pants for you? Or is there a little uh, rush of adrenaline? Can you identify with any one of those? Here, let me give you one more. 
the person comes up, you're not expecting it, and they say, you mind if I give you a little feedback? Ha. <laughs> you know, unsolicited feedback always feels like criticism. Hopefully constructive criticism, but it always feels like criticism. And, and you know the, the uh, flush of blood to your face, like gulp? Yeah, I love to learn. I'm a lifelong learner. Hit me. Because that's what it feels like. Can you identify with any of these uh, experiences? Can I tell you, uh, in high school, progress reports had a different name. They were called failure notices. And I'll just tell you, I became an expert at intercepting failure notices. Why? Because I wanted to maintain my academic irresponsibility and my freedom from homework. But can I just tell you, it was progress reports, report cards, performance reviews that were my wake-up call. Yes, this is true. I went from a 1.9 academic GPA in high school to a 3.8 my freshman year in college. Made the principal's list. Because I said, it's time to wake up and do my homework. And so it worked. And I just want you to think about it. What The, the, the opposite or the lack of these kinds of feedback loops are far worse. Ignorance, blind spots, damaging patterns, self-defeating behaviors, diminishing impacts, and damaged souls. When we are unwilling to get the feedback that we need from these kinds of tools or these kinds of relationships. As a church, I just need to let you know, we cannot get our report card from Jesus directly or get it yet. However, we can actually do some digging and we can get a picture of our health. We can get a progress report by looking at other churches' progress reports. And that is what we are going to be doing over the next eight weeks. This is a sermon series. If you've been following the rhythms of the year already, we took five weeks to talk about the Great Commission to ensure that we're saying it over and over and over again. This church does not exist for those who are already in its membership. The church is the only organization that exists for those outside of its constituency. The reason why we are discipled disciples is to go and reach people and make disciples. And that's been the baton that's been passed from generation to generation to generation to generation. And so the Great Commission was those first five weeks. We're moving into a sermon series that really has to do about church health. Lifting the hood, looking under the hood, looking at the dashboard. Lord, what do, you, what do you want to say to us as a church? What are those important things that churches are about and do? Where would we find ourselves? If you were able to come and give us a progress report, if you were able to give us a performance review, wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, it could save our lives. It could save the, the, the future of our church. If we could hear directly from the Lord, Lord, you know this church, could you please tell us what it is? What is it that, where is it that we're strong? Where is it that we're weak? Where is it that you say, repent? With so much that we could meet with Jesus, even with the adrenaline rush, even with the, the discomfort of, of sitting in under his, his piercing gaze, I would give just about anything to have that kind 
of one-on-one with Jesus. Since we can't do it, we can look at these seven letters to the seven churches found in Revelation chapter 2 through 3. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Revelation chapter 2. And I'll just tell you how the next seven, eight weeks are going to go. We're going to look at each of these letters as a church health report card for those churches. By the grace of God, the Holy Spirit will show us um, not only as individuals where we come in uh, as compared to them, but also corporately, congregationally. Where would we find ourselves? And so here's what we're doing on the eighth week. And we're going to do this very humbly because I do not speak for Jesus, but we're going to be doing a survey. We're going to be doing it with the elders, congregants, and staff in, in to do our best to discern if Jesus were to write letter number eight, what might he say to us? Sound like a plan? All right, so today we're beginning with the church at Ephesus. Reading from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Ready? To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. But I do have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The year is 95 AD, and the Apostle John, the last living apostle, is exiled on the island of Patmos. It's a Sunday morning, and John is thinking about the Holy Scriptures, and he's singing and making melody in his heart. He indicates this by saying he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day when he hears a voice behind him, and he turns around and he sees the risen and exalted Jesus Christ. Jesus tells him to write down the words that he is about to speak. Revelation as a a book or uh, a piece of literature. It's actually a letter, and it is absolutely addressed to all believers of all times, generally speaking, but it's specifically addressed to seven churches found in Asia Minor. That's found in chapter 1, verse 
11. These were real churches in the first century. And yet, what we learn from the book of Revelation, and specifically in this sermon series, these letters to these seven churches, is meant to be heard and obeyed by all believers of all times. Chapter 2 and 3 is where we find these seven different letters. Each one of them follows a similar pattern. Let me just give you the pattern to, to know what to expect throughout these weeks. There's a title of the risen and exalted Christ typically sourced from chapter 1. Secondly, there's a section introducing praiseworthy attributes if there are praiseworthy attributes in said church. Thirdly, a criticism of the church, except for two of them, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Fourthly, there's a warning, an exhortation, um, beginning with something like, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And then finally, there's a promise. There's a promise given to individuals, even if the church fails to repent corporately. Individual Christians in that city who repent are given a promise. Beginning with something like, to him that overcomes, I will give. And then there's a promise given. It's a powerful, powerful uh, way to do a progress report. Performance review. And the first one that we look at this morning that we just read is that church in Ephesus. Perhaps the most important of the locations. It's the port city that, that roads go out radially to all the other six. And this is a, a very powerful and influential city. It's also known as the seat of the Temple of Artemis. Apparently she's the Greek goddess, virgin goddess of the hunt. However, the worship of Artemis is morally reprehensible. Hundreds or even thousands of temple prostitutes. Not only is it the seat of the temple to Artemis, it's also the center of the occultic arts. Witchcraft. Those kinds of things. We learn that from the book of Acts. The church of Ephesus was established in 53 AD. This is many decades before the Lord's letter to the church there. Apollos, Priscilla, and Aquila, and then the Apostle Paul himself for two and a half to three years were there. And, and we get this picture. We get it from several sources. The book of Acts, the letter to Ephesians, First and Second Timothy. Those all have to do with Ephesus. And then now this. It was a church that was wonderful. It was active. It was effective. It was influential around the world in its first three decades. But now it has a problem. Now it's in trouble with the master of all churches. I want to take you back to the introduction because the rest of the performance review, I believe, is, is very important. It's, this introduction is very important in, in order to understand the standard of conduct or the rubric by which Jesus, the true Head shepherd, the owner of the church, the standard by which he is judging them, I believe is found in 
verse 1. This is what it says again. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Now, this is an interesting thing. To the angel, and, and quick reading, we go, oh, that's like some spiritual being, some provincial power, some spirit world protector of the church. But that is nowhere in the context. So we have the question, so who is the angel? By the way, all the pronouns for seven verses are singular, meaning this letter is written specifically to a person or a personality called the angel of the church in Ephesus. Um, but secondly, what is the significance of the seven stars, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the word in the Greek is, is a powerful grip. Powerful grip. What are these seven stars? He who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So here's our questions Who's the angel of the church of Ephesus? What are the seven stars? And what are the seven golden lampstands? Well, here we go. The word. Angel, angelos in the Greek, is a messenger, one who is sent from God. It's my strong conviction that this is a human being. That it is in, in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, leader. God gave some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. They are called gifts in that text, gifts from God's heavenly treasury that the church leaders that God raises up, and specifically the bishop or the lead pastor of the city church called Ephesus. That is, in my humble opinion, you don't have to agree. It's just my conviction that that is the bishop of Ephesus. I'm 98% certain from my research into church history and all the scriptures, this is actually Timothy. Now, another interesting little piece of information. John, when he is released from exile, actually lives in, in his later years in Ephesus. And um, tradition holds that uh, the mother of Jesus, Mary, also lived there and John took care of her. So he preaches and teaches and he's friends with Timothy, apparently. But the angel is that lead pastor in Ephesus. That, again, in my opinion, it's Timothy. Well, what about the stars and the lampstands? What are these? Though, that question, those questions are answered in chapter 1. And so if I could take you back to, to Revelation 1, verses 12 through 16, and then 20, we get our answer. This is what it says. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. This is the exalted Christ in a vision. John goes on to describe him. The hairs of his head were, like, were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice like the roar of many waters. And then listen to this in verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars. Firm grip, seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the, sh the sun shining in full strength. So we still don't know what they are until verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, 
This is Jesus actually talking to him. And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here's my, my reducing that to a principle. The stars or angels, because Jesus says they're the same thing. These are God's messengers or pastors and teachers to the churches. These are the messengers who deliver God's truth. They articulate and clarify and protect doctrine. You follow? They're, they're charged with the protection of the church doctrinally. It's the angel of the church of Ephesus. Timothy was told in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, remain in Ephesus and teach certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Bam, he's the angel. That's my opinion. Golden lampstands. These are the churches. And why are they described as lampstands? Because they are the ones who shine the gospel, God's gospel light into the darkness of the surrounding culture. Churches are meant to be witnessing beacons of hope and light for the gospel in the city in which they live. This was not a new concept to the book of Revelation. This actually went back again and again and again and all over Old Testament Israel that God set them up to be a light to the nations. In fact, I'm cherry-picking one of several. Isaiah 49, 6, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. They were the original candle stand. And guess what? They rejected their Lord and Master himself. They rejected Messiah. And so God removed their candle stand. So stars and angels bring God's truth, protect God's truth to and in the churches and the lampstands disseminate and diffuse the light of the gospel, the hope of salvation for the entire world to see. You follow? Why is that important? Verse 1. We're hung up and stuck on verse 1. Why are we stuck on verse 1? Because this is the rubric. This is the standard that Jesus is using to measure the church of Ephesus by. And here's the fill-in-the-blank, the first sub-point, Jesus is profoundly committed, profoundly committed to the internal doctrinal purity and the external gospel clarity of his churches. Jesus is fired up about these two things. And both of them matter. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Salt and light, same exact rubric. Same exact standard of performance. You must be salty. That is truth in, in what is right. And you must also shine like a city on a hill. I've been around the block for many years and, and um, friends in lots and lots of churches, been to a lot of churches. I've only actually belonged to four and there's all kinds of churches for all kinds of people. But if I could just pick on two uh, that, that really emphasize this model. And 
when a church loses its balance. And the first kind of church that I've seen is, I'll just call it the outreach church, and I love that. Oh, they reach so many people for Christ. I want to be a part of that kind of church. Everything they do is missional and outreach and evangelism. But I've seen that kind of church at times be doctrinally light and flimsy. I've heard it called Jesus light. Great taste, less filling. For those of us old guys that remember beer commercials, right? Great taste, less filling. Yeah, let's do church. Great taste, less filling. Teacher, my brain's full. I don't want that much Bible. Can we go now? I've also seen the other kind of church. And I think there's reasons for this. Sometimes it's personality driven. They're so doctrinally robust and biblically thick. There's insider language. And the people that need to understand the gospel can't even get to level one. And the church doesn't give a damn. Because they're biblically sound and robust theologically. Now, it's never supposed to be like that. It's always supposed to be both and. Jesus expects and demands both. So that's a great question. Where are we, Journey Church? Where are we on that? Individually, each person here, you ask that question. Am I way into Bible study so much that I don't, I don't even know lost people anymore? Are you so passionate about evangelism? You're like, dude, can we shorten the sermon? I get it. I'm trying to shorten it all the time. <laughs> Give me my progress report. I know I fail on that. But listen, Jesus demands and expects both. He is tenaciously or, or profoundly committed to the internally doctrinal purity and external gospel clarity of his church. Well, the church in Ephesus was getting an A plus in doctrinal purity. Were they not? A plus. In fact, verses 2 through 3 and verse 6. Listen, in, in some of the word studies here, I know your works. Works signifies the, the whole of life and contact, uh, co- uh, conduct, character and virtue and integrity. Man, they had it. Their whole of life and conduct. Your toil, this is the word in the Greek, kopos. It means to take a beating. Like you're, you're working so hard, it's like, you know, getting pummeled. You're exhausted for Christ, and that's a good thing. And your patient endurance, this is the word in the Greek, hupomeno, it means to remain under a heavy weight. You're in it, you're carrying the burden, and you're not quitting. You cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested. That's the word, it means to, be, to place on trial. There were false apostles in the first century that were prophesied, and we know from church history and the scriptures it came true. And they'd come rolling into town, and they'd say, hey, we're, we're super apostles. We're better than Paul. We've got a new take on this thing. You need to think this way. And the church of Ephesus said, oh yeah? Have a seat. Let's do a little uh, performance review on your teaching. And they actually found them to be false. That's discernment. That's really important. Really good thing to be in a church. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. You're not pansies. You're not complaining. You're not 
you're not, it's all those things that you can see, um, wimpy Christians, these are not wimpy Christians. These are tough believers. And then in verse 6, uh, yet you, this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I want you to notice, he doesn't say, I hate the Nicolaitans. I hate the works of the Nicolaitans. And, and who are the Nicolaitans? We cannot be sure. But I think that there's really good evidence to get an idea of who they are. You interested in who they are? Some have actually tied them to one of the first um, deacons. There with Stephen and Philip, waiting tables. Nicholas is named in that list. Others, like Arrhenius said, no, that's a misnomer. That wasn't him. But, but the idea is that, that somewhere along the road, Nicholas or someone named Nicholas uh, came in and started to teach a gospel of cultural appropriation, meaning, um, and we're all a part of a culture, but there are immoral parts of culture. And Nicholas apparently was saying, it's okay, don't geek out. You can go up to the Temple of Artemis. You can eat at the restaurants up there. Um, you can take part. If you have an oopsie and you mess up and you visit a temple prostitute, no big deal. The blood of Christ covers you from that. In fact, in fact, third century, Victorinus of Patau actually wrote, so this is like 200 years removed. He actually said this of what he thought the Nicolaitans were. False and troublesome men who, as ministers under the name of Nicholas, had made for themselves a heresy to the effect that what had been offered to idols might be exercised, meaning casting out the demons of the stake, because it was offered to a demon god, Artemis, and then you can eat it. Furthermore, whoever should have committed fornication might receive peace on the eighth day. I think it's a pretty good guess. I've seen most, most commentators go, yeah, um, he was antinomian, meaning after you get forgiven of sins, there's no law. You're set free from the law of God. So, yeah, you just live life, follow your instincts, and give praise to the Lord. So this was contrary to sound doctrine. And guess what? The Ephesian church says, we hate that nonsense. It destroys people's souls. It leads them down the path of destruction. They ruin lives and families and churches. We're not putting up with it. They hated the works of the Nicolaitans, and Jesus says, me too. So, again, they got a, an A-plus in doctrinal purity, in discernment, and holiness, in ministry, and work ethic. They got an A-plus. They were the salt of the earth that Jesus talked about in Matthew 5.13. You are the salt of the earth. Stay salty. And let me tell you, salty salt is good salt. And so before we move on, we need to just take a look at that. And it's the second fill-in-the-blank. Truth, toil, and tenacity are essential and praiseworthy. So before we get into the criticism, can we just for a moment, instead of going, yeah, but they didn't have love, meaning that other stuff doesn't matter. Don't do that. End up at, at a jesus light church. And be led astray. But they have love. Guess what? You need both. Jesus demands both. And this kind of tenacious commitment to truth. And this protection of doctrine and teaching and life. And character and virtue. Was so important. 
It's amazing that the Ephesian church had this much salt. You know why? Um, years before, it was prophesied that they were going to be targeted for a very devious, twofold attack. The Apostle Paul in Acts 20 stops off to, to encourage the Ephesian elders before going to Jerusalem. And he says this in Acts 20, 29 through 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Could those be Nicolaitans, false apostles? Who knows? And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So these are not false apostles. Could they be the Nicolaitans? I don't know. But this twofold attack, wolves from the outside, liars from the inside, were going to permeate the city church in Ephesus. And guess what? If it's Timothy or if it's all the elders, three generations later, they had passed the test of being salty salt. They had passed the test of truth and toil and tenacity. And that was a good thing. Journey Church, let's never lose our commitment to the Holy Scriptures and to doctrine and, and not, just, not, not just a brainwave doctrine. Don't go there. Good doctrine is owned in the heart and lived out in the hands and feet in the mouth. Doctrine is supposed to permeate and drive all the other activities so good doctrine actually yields and produces the other thing. And this is where they are in trouble with Jesus. This is what it says in verse 4. I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. This is a great translation. Some translations and some teachers say, you have abandoned your first love. And we go, oh, the first love is always the, the person you're married to, the honeymoon. And, and it's obviously Jesus, and that's not what the text actually says. But more accurately, the love they had at first. The word abandoned here is emphatic. They had completely forsaken some kind of love, we don't know for sure what it was, but it was a kind of love that animated and empowered the early church in their first generation, their first three decades of being a church plant. They had a kind of love that drove them, that, that animated them, that inspired them. And Jesus has said, you've left it, you've abandoned it, you've dropped it. You're, you're still doing all the dues of, of the internal work of the church and doctrinal purity, but you're missing that love. Now, what, what kind of love might be missing from this truth-oriented, hard-working church? We only really have three options. Option number one is that it is a love for Christ. The problem with that is there's no mention of idolatry, and it appears as if there is great love and devotion to their master, as seen for a great love for the Holy Scriptures, and the hard and sacrificial work of ministry. How else do you demonstrate love? We just can talk about a squishy feeling like, you know, we didn't cry when we sang the songs anymore. I don't think so. I think that, that, that we have evidence here. They have not abandoned their master. The second option is that it's their love for one another. They were actually commended in Ephesians chapter 2 for their great love for one another in the church several years prior. 
It's possible. But here's the deal. They're under, uh, actually, a couple, a couple of emperors later from Nero. They've had external persecution from the Roman government. They've actually had internal uh, persecution from false teachers and false apostles. Um, my experience is that churches that go through that kind of testing actually love one another really well. It's us against the world. This is just my guess. I can't prove this. The third kind of love that could be missing is a love for hard, messy, and lost people. Hmm. In the Greek grammar, we don't know. It's not in there. But I think from the context and why I drilled down so hard on verse 1, my best guess is it's this third kind of love. Here's why. The way Jesus introduces himself as the one who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands and then the, the warning, if you don't repent and do the works you did at first, I will come and remove that lampstand. I believe that's very intentional. And I believe that's the clue we need to understand. It's the third kind of love. This church was so committed to the scriptures in doctrine, in purity, in ferreting out true heresy. They were exhausted, they were beat down, they were inward focused. Three decades prior, it was win the world for Christ or die trying. But now they're experiencing battle fatigue. And you go, that's fair, it's understandable, yeah, but it's not, not okay. And Jesus says, if you don't remedy this, if you don't remediate this, you're done. Your whole role in the world is to be a candle stand to the nations. When you stop being that, why bother? When it starts to just become about doctrinal purity and, and all about you and your preferences and your protection. Listen, the gates of hell are not supposed to prevail against the church, not the other way around. We're not bunkered in a holy huddle going, oh my goodness, we're going to die in here. But even in persecution, in false teaching, you go, hoo-ah, let's do this. Let's take the hill with a, and storm the gates of hell with a squirt gun. Only we actually have a huge blaster of the gospel. So Jesus says to them, Repent. G.K. Beale is a great commentator of the book of Revelation. I just wanted to cite this because he agrees with my position. In fact, I got my position mostly from him. But this is what he says. Although they were ever on guard to maintain the purity of the apostolic teaching, the Ephesian Christians were not diligent in the witnessing to the same faith in the outside world. Jump down a little bit. The idea is that they no longer express their former zealous love for Jesus by witnessing to him in the world. That's why Christ introduced himself as he does in verse 1. His statement that he walks in the midst of the seven lampstands is intended to remind the introverted readers that the primary role in relation to their Lord should be that of light of witness to the outside world. Journey Church, we're not called to merely be salty salt we are also called to be shiny light. And it must be both 
And this is what Jesus said in Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine so that they, before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so I believe what Jesus was telling them, the kind of love that had been lost, is a gospel witness, lampstand, light-bearing love for messy people, broken people, and lost people. I'll say it once again. It's a gospel witness, lampstand, light-bearing love for messy people, broken people, and lost people. I believe there's evidence in 2 Corinthians 5 when the Apostle Paul says, for the love of Christ compels us, controls us. In the context there, we beg of you, be reconciled to God. In 2 Corinthians 5, begging the readers to come to faith in Jesus, to repent, to come back to the Lord. And the love of Christ is compelling him to say these things. This is the kind of love, perhaps, that was lost. And this is the warning. Verse 5, remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent, do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Again, G.K. Beale says, if they will not exercise their call to be a lamp of witness, then their lamp will be removed as with Israel in the Old Testament. They will cease to exist as a church when the very function that defines the essence of their existence is no longer performed. And that brings us to our bottom line. And you need to under, we need to understand this, this uh, two-fold purpose of the church. And I say it like this. Truth without love, toil without kindness, tenacity without tenderness, doctrine without witness will still get us disqualified. Wow. We need both. We must be salt and light. We heard this read, 1 Corinthians 13. Love without, or, or all these gifts and, and grit and sacrifice without love, you're a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And you gain Nothing. So Journey Church, how we doing? Can I just give a pastor's quick perspective? I can't guarantee for each person in here, I know collectively something just happened. And I see the energy and the momentum taking place over years. And the light disseminating from the hill right here. I think we could do more, but can I just take a moment and can we just celebrate for a moment? Our disability ministry emphasis can we for a moment say thank you to Christy Hanneman who just led us in our fifth? She's right there. Yep. It was almost a thousand on the campus here. It was organized chaos. It was beautiful. Actually, the chaos was up at Ace Hardware parking lot, but... Can I just tell you a few of the quotes that she texted me this morning? Uh, quotes from participants and, and uh, volunteers. Listen to these words. Listen to the, the beauty of the gospel. 
Without you, my daughter would never get to go to a prom. No one has ever taken time to talk to me like you have. This is the best day of my entire life. I came here to serve and do good, but I feel like I'm the one who walked away with the biggest blessing. I've heard that so many times over from people that participate in disability ministry. Over and over and over again, I see this. Oh, it's going to be so hard. I'm going to be so uncomfortable. Whoa, I love this. You should give it a try. Someone said, I'd rather be a buddy here than go to my own school prom. A group of people said, we volunteer for all kinds of events, but this is one we will never miss again. We can't wait until our daughter is old enough to be our guest of honor here. And then finally, listen to this. Maybe Jesus is for real. I have never felt the way I did tonight. Maybe Jesus is for real. Because you know what? More Bible studies don't always communicate that. But light and candle stand kind of witness and love absolutely gets the, the word across. Journey Church, this is great. It was wonderful. But guess what? We've never arrived. We're not there yet. I wonder what else we could do together. Right? What, what other kind of ministries? You know, COVID in my sabbatical just wiped out a whole bunch of good ministries into the community. I'm not saying let's get really busy and get really exhausted. I'm saying, but what else might the Lord allow us to do? What other open doors into the community might there be that we could shine the gospel witness into this dark world? And then furthermore, individual, participant, member, uh, attendee, how about your life? Where are you at on this scale? All doctrine, no love? Or all love and no doctrine? Because you need both. We need both. And what happens when we compromise on one or the other? We lose our witness. We lose our saltiness. We, we lose our shininess. And neither one of those is a good thing. So the formula and the promise is this. Remember. Hold in your mind constantly what it used to be like in those early days of passion and vigor and love. We're going to win the world for Christ. Remember that. Don't say, oh, those cute little kids came back from camp and they're all on fire for Jesus and that's just them. Jesus says, you better get back there. You better figure it out. You better learn how to get fired up again. And then he says, repent it means to change your mind. You've been making excuses and lying to yourself that it's okay to just be steady Eddie. It's not okay. You need to repent. He says it twice. And he says, go back and do the things you did at first. Is there a season of life where it's like, man, passionate for the scriptures and passionate for witness? Go back and do that again. If you don't, we're done. For anyone who has ears to hear and to obey, the one who conquers, I will give or grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Listen, 
What's he talking about here is walking personally and intimately with the God of the universe. Not just in the hereafter, but in the here and now. There is an intimacy that is promised that was lost in Adam's sinful rebellion. He walked in the midst of the garden and had access to the tree. But upon sin and rebellion, that privilege was lost and he was banished from the garden. And the tree guarded by a cherub with a flaming sword. But it's promised for those who would hear and heed the words of our Lord. Intimacy with Christ. Oh, Journey Church, let us be that church that welcomes the presence of Jesus because we continually remember, continually walk in repentance, and continually do those things that we did as a church plant, winning people for Christ and celebrating and growing them up in the faith. May we be that church. Amen. Lord God, thank you so much for this report card. How much we align with it or not, we can still learn so much as a church. Lord, we're not there yet. We want to get better. We want to hear from you. And Lord, a church, a congregation is made up of individuals. Some better, some worse, and each with a strength and weakness. And Lord, together, may you lead us to be both salty and shiny in this world until you return. Oh, what a gift to experience the intimacy with you as never before. To eat of the tree in the midst of the paradise of God and then forevermore in eternity. We look forward to that day, but we want as much of it as we can have right now, so we want to be obedient. We love you. Jesus Christ Savior, Master, Head Shepherd, and True Owner of Journey Church. We love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.